Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 51. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we sit down and talk with the head of detection and response at Robinhood, David Seidman. Thanks for being on the show with us today, David. It's a real honor to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. To get things started, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. I manage Robinhood's threat intelligence and detection and response platform teams. Until very recently, I also managed the detection and response operations team, but we just had a reorg and I shifted my responsibilities to pick up threat intel and spin off the DNR ops. Always more things to do, eh? (laughs) Always. Yeah. Uh, So you're educated as a computer scientist. You did a master's focused on cognitive and neural systems at Boston University. What was it that initially got you interested in computers and what was it that made you decide to pursue that study of them academically? I was the stereotypical kid who took the clock apart. I I actually took a clock apart once and always had things scattered around the house. And the first time I ever got my hands on a computer, uh, the first time I wrote a single line of code, literally, I remember the exact line of code. Uh, my dad's Apple IIe, which I actually have now in my garage. Oh, cool. Uh, I was hooked, literally the first slide of code. Uh, I coded all the time. Um, I did some reverse engineering to figure out how things worked. Right up through high school, when it became uncool, I dropped it. And then when I went to college, I knew that I, this was something I was good at and had an interest in. I took a computer science course. And from the first few weeks of my first computer science course, it was abundantly clear that this is what I should do with my life. I loved it. I was good at it. It was a good field to get into. And there was just absolutely no question in my mind that this is what I would spend my life doing. Oh, very cool. And you mentioned the Apple IIe. I love that machine. My uncle had one and I used to play a load runner and joust and there was a bunch of games on there that I loved. I actually, my kids uh, have played on it recently. The keyboard's broken, but they still, it still has the same appeal that it did to me as a kid back then. Right. And it had some interesting startup noises, if I remember correctly. That's right. I also heard a rumor that you were into ultra marathons. For anybody who is not aware, an ultra marathon is like a normal marathon, but multiple times longer. I think 100 miles is a pretty regular length for them. What inspired you to take on such a punishing sport? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think of it that way. I got into running because I loved hiking. And I wanted to go farther and farther, faster and faster to be able to see more. At some point, that naturally progressed into trail running. And I found that however far I'd been before, I wanted to keep going farther. And so it's just, it went from a marathon to 50Ks to 50 milers to last year, a 100 miler. Uh, Next year, I'm hoping to do a 200 miler. Yeah, (laughs) if I can get in. Believe it or not, they have lotteries for these things because there are so many people trying to do them. Wow, 200 miles. How long does it take somebody on average to run that? About three days. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm hoping you sleep at some point during those three days. Uh, somewhat. The winners typically will not sleep at all or will sleep bare minimum. Uh, I'm planning to sleep a few hours during the event. Uh, you, you have kids as well, right? That's right. Yeah, I have a five and a half year old and a nine year old. Well, I I don't know how you manage that hobby, children, plus your role at Robinhood. It sounds like a lot. I don't get much sleep. Yeah. So your career has spanned approximately 20 years, and have you worked at some of the biggest tech companies in the world, 
You spent 10 years at Microsoft in a couple of positions, including a senior position in their security response center. What was that like? A very interesting period to be there. At the beginning, uh, security awareness was really just dawning. My, my first project with Microsoft was the Office version of Windows XP Service Pack 2, which was Microsoft's initial push to fix all of the security vulnerabilities it had avoided fixing for a decade prior. It was the moment when Microsoft really got with it. And so we were all building up our knowledge. We didn't really know much about how to do much at that point. And the outside environment was also very difficult. Zero-day vulnerabilities for free on full disclosure regularly. And we were figuring everything out as we went. And there was not a lot of prior art for us to draw upon. And then over time, while I worked there and then through the rest of my career, we've seen a really great increase in the professionalism in the field. We have been through most kinds of incidents many times now. We know what to do. There are lots of vendors making interesting products that can meet needs that previously we didn't meet at all or that we had to build something internally to meet. The skill of people in the industry is much greater. We have a lot more people who have been doing this for many, many years now, and their skill is greater, and we just have a lot more people total. There is some <laughs> counterbalance because attackers have gotten better as well. And we've also become aware that they've always been around with high skill and high numbers, but uh, we've become increasingly aware of that over time. So things have gotten much more professional and there's much more awareness and investment. And sometimes it still feels like we've gotten nowhere. I always like to remind people that the NSA did have all their tools leaked about five or six years ago. So that definitely changed the landscape as well. After Google and before Robinhood, you did a stint at Salesforce where you worked on some confidential stuff. Any high-level info you can give us about the work you did there? Sure. At the highest level, I managed the threat detection team, which was responsible for authoring detection logic and generally overseeing everything to do with detection. The Probably the most interesting thing that we were trying to do there is finding a way to achieve excellent detection coverage without boiling the ocean, without trying to right generic coverage for every single TTP in the MITRE attack matrix. Uh, when I worked for Microsoft and Google, both of those companies sell explicitly security products. You know, Microsoft has an antivirus product, and they have many products where security is a fundamental selling point of the product, like browsers. Uh, Salesforce values security, but they don't sell products based on the security of that product. It's not a top-level selling point of the product. Uh, which changes how you invest. You're much more concerned about things coming to you, threats to you directly, and less about threats to your end users. Not to say that Salesforce isn't concerned about those threats, but relatively speaking, the balance tips towards protecting the enterprise. But it also means that there's less investment relative to someone building a product, because when you build a product, you get money back from that, which you then can use to hire more developers. So that the things you build for the product don't necessarily help your enterprise security, but sometimes they do. So we had to find clever ways to approach that problem space without trying to just write all of the detection that's possible. One of the ideas that we pursued was to effectively concede certain kill chain stages to attackers and not invest very heavily in trying to detect those parts of the kill chain, but instead focus tightly 
on other stages where we did feel that we had the ability to make effective detection that an attacker would have trouble bypassing. So as an example, we might concede that the attacker will infect a user laptop and persist on that laptop, but we might not allow them to access administrative identity. So we might put tight detection around access to and use of admin roles. So the attacker might be able to get onto a laptop. We think it's going to be hard to detect them, but they won't be able to elevate privileges and actually do anything useful with it. Unfortunately, I left Salesforce before we got very far in implementing that, so I don't know what the end result was, but I think it's a promising idea, and I would love to hear if anybody has tried that and had results one way or the other. I'd love to see that in the comments. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. You know, it's always about triage, I think. It's where do you put the resources, where do you put the effort, and if you just sort of Except that you won't be able to do or you're not going to do anything here and really tighten up the bottlenecks where you think you can catch them. I, I think that's a great approach. It can be a hard sell. Yeah. So through your career and at these global sized companies, you've consistently built out high performance teams to solve hard problems in high stakes environments. I'm hoping we can dive into that a little here on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to start, what's the secret of building resilient high performance teams? In two words, psychological safety. Uh, psychological safety is everything. Psychological safety means that the team trusts each other deeply. And if the team trusts each other deeply, they'll share ideas that they're not certain about. They'll take that risk with their teammates and they'll give each other feedback openly, even if the feedback is negative. And the person who's receiving the negative feedback will receive it positively because they trust that teammate. They believe that their teammate is looking out for everyone's best interest, including the person whose work is being criticized. When you have a team where people interact that way, uh, not only do they love their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis, but they actually get tighter when things get hard. They're there for each other. And psychological safety is how you build the team that people remember for the rest of their lives in a good way. As a manager, your job is to make that happen through the messaging you deliver, by coaching people and giving them feedback, by hiring people who align with that value, and by enforcing consequences when you have to. Uh, that's actually almost never necessary. If you make it clear that you're going to uphold the high standard of professionalism and respectful behavior, people will rise to the occasion. I've virtually never had any issues with this over my whole career. And I think that's because I've always delivered a consistent message that we're going to treat each other with a very high degree of respect and we're going to act like professionals in the office. And that's what people want from their job. They want to be respected, they want to be trusted, and they want to trust others. And so when everyone buys into that as a team, you can have a very high-performing team, even under adverse circumstances. Yeah, my next question was going to ask you how important culture is to the team, but that's, I think, sort of answered in your first question. It's sort of everything. It's everything. Yeah. So this might not be a thing you encounter in these teams where there's a high amount of trust and people love their jobs, but in cybersecurity, it, there's a lot of turnover as people sort of chase an exposition and the higher salary. How do you handle that and keep the team cohesive? Yeah, there's always going to be turnover. And even on the best teams, sometimes it's time for someone to move on or they get an opportunity that your team can't equal. And I think the right turnover can be good for everyone. When someone gets an opportunity to advance their career that's not realistically going to be available to them in my organization, I'm very happy for them. I love for them to take that opportunity. I've had managers in the past who supported me when I had an opportunity that was 
better than the one I had in their organization. Um, and I've always really appreciated that and want to extend it to other people. It's also good for the team. As people leave the team, you can bring in new people that fill the gaps that the team needs at that moment. Uh, for example, if you have a team where everyone is progressing their careers, over time, the team will get more and more senior and you'll start to have all people at leadership levels or uh, wanting to be at leadership levels and not as many people who are at levels where they're focused on doing technical work as the core of their job. Um, and that starts to make the team unhealthy, even though it's a great thing for every individual involved. So sometimes when those folks leave the team, you can backfill with somebody who's at a lower level and restore the balance to the team. And that opens up opportunities for everyone. Uh, that's the best outcome. That said, there's also bad turnover. I don't want to make it sound like every time someone leaves, it's a good thing. There's always what we've often called regrettable attrition, where someone has left the team that you would have preferred to stay. The other thing is, even when you have people coming in who are helping improve the balance of the team's skills, you still need to ramp them up effectively. I think a lot of folks view documentation as the solution to onboarding new employees effectively. I think that that's wrong. I think it's very hard to keep documentation updated and relevant. Uh, and I think you wind up spending more time doing that than actually bringing people on board. Uh, instead, I think it's better to focus on reducing the complexity of your environment by keeping your system simple, keeping your code simple, and making it so that there's less that people have to learn uh, and the things that they need to know are more obvious just from looking at what they need to do. For the ramp up that, of course, any new employee has to do, I like to keep it very focused on the humans, on having a good peer mentor, on giving them support myself. And having somebody, or preferably everyone on, on a psychologically safe team, anyone can go to anyone. And uh, I think that helps people onboard very quickly and become part of that psychologically safe culture. I'm really big on mentorship. I think everyone on the team should have a mentor. I think that's especially helpful for new employees, but I think it's helpful for every single person on the team. Is that something you facilitate? in a semi or official way when somebody comes on board you kind of pair them up with a buddy and that's exactly right yeah i pair them up with an onboarding buddy uh, and then that will be a different person than their long-term mentor so once they've been at the company for a little while a couple months and i know them i know what their career goals are they've been through my career planning process i'll try to match them up with a mentor somewhere else in the organization that's aligned to the skills growth they need. So it might be a senior leader if they're trying to push towards senior leadership roles, or it might be a technical mentor if they're still trying to learn some of the more fundamental concepts if they're earlier in their career, for example. Is that something you sit down with new employees to do as well, sort of map out where they want to go five years out? Is that part of the process? That's exactly right. I have a, a process that I've synthesized from all the companies I've worked together with a template I've been meaning to write an article about it and hopefully will soon. Uh, just walking through what their fundamental values are, the things that are important to them in life, the things that they think they're good at and less good at, strengths and weaknesses, and then map that to any career goals they have or career goals that we can tease out through discussion. Uh, and then based on that map, I can then map their work towards their career goals. So if I know where they're trying to get, I can assign them work or work with them to select work that matches up to where they're trying to go. Uh, my goal is that everyone on the team 
has work that is challenging, but achievable, that is interesting to them, that aligns with their career path, and that has a meaningful business result. Uh, you can't necessarily achieve all of that at one time, but you can usually find all of those things over the course of a few months. Well, that, that sounds wonderful. I don't think I've ever had a manager so thoughtful. Well, I would like to say you should come work for me, but I don't have any open positions. So you'll have to wait. <laughs> I'm quite happy with the team at Lima Charlie. We've, yeah, yeah. But I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, again, I kind of feel like you answered part of this in the last answer, but uh, I've got it written down here. So, you know, life in the sock can be pretty boring day in and day out. It can be pretty monotonous. Are there things you do to help keep your employees engaged? I think it's really important that employees have work that matches their skill level. So it it can actually be a very educational experience for a SOC analyst who has absolutely no experience in the security industry to come in and just see the kinds of tickets that cross their plate. What are we alerting on? What are the true positive alerts? What are the false positive alerts that are interesting? What are the triage scenarios? What are the tools that they use to do triage? For somebody who's just starting their career, those things can be very interesting and educational and just being there in the SOC can be a great experience. Fairly quickly, they'll develop the skills to be able to handle your average ticket and that's when they need to have more difficult work. So as they build those skills, we start giving them more and more and more. And over time, they grow, they get promoted. And uh, my goal is that we keep pushing people up towards those senior levels. Every time they get bored, give them something harder. And it doesn't really matter what their official level is right now. If they're capable of doing harder work than they're doing, I'm going to give them that work to keep them at that edge where they're growing and learning. And that also keeps them engaged. Yeah, that flow state is a balance between what you're capable of and something just outside of your capability, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the goal. Hard to achieve, but mostly I think we're able to achieve it. Awesome. How do you keep morale up when there is a breach or failure of the system? Well, we are the detection and response team. We're responsible for what happens after the breach. So if we got breached, that's not our fault. That's someone else's fault. So, you know, not our problem. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. Of course, it's a problem and we would never want to be breached. And we, we are upset when there's a security issue of any kind. So I don't, I don't want to make light of that. But it is actually an opportunity for us to shine. Our job is to be there when something bad does happen. So from a detection perspective, if we caught it early, that's a huge win. Uh, even if we caught an attack later, maybe some damage has already been done. Still, we caught it, which is a lot better than not catching it. And for the incident response team, this is their time to shine. This is why we have an incident response team is for when things happen. We do a ton of practice, tabletop exercises, but ultimately, the reason the incident response team is there is so that when there is an incident, we can respond to it. So even though it's a stressful time, it's also an opportunity for people to do their very best work. Um, and responding to high severity incidents is something that people will remember for their entire career. I can still name specific incidents that I was a part of that I remember the incident response to. I, I imagine you can as well. Uh, so even though they're very stressful moments, they're also very meaningful moments and they're a chance for us to uh, show what we can do. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it earlier, too. I think that's a moment when some really strong bonds are formed between people when you're in that firefight together at the same time. That's exactly right. It's actually really incidents can be really great for team chemistry. 
So when interviewing new candidates, is there anything that you do that's outside of the norm or, or something that you think would be worth mentioning for people listening? What are things you look for in a candidate? Yeah. Um, first thing to say is I follow our company's official processes. That's been a little bit different from organization to organization, but there are a lot of commonalities. There's always a technical component where we're trying to understand what the candidate is capable of doing, what are they familiar with. And then there's a behavioral component, questions like, tell me about a time when, where we're looking for how the candidate has responded to situations that tend to be interpersonal or communication oriented. Uh, for Robinhood specifically, you can reference our career page. Uh, we have some information about our interview process there. Uh, and candidates in the interview process will also get prepped from their recruiters. Um, I have a somewhat interesting, I think unusual approach to conducting interviews. During the interview, I'm very focused on gathering data. So I ask lots of open-ended questions, lots of follow-up questions, and I try to take as close to verbatim notes as I can. And I try to do as little evaluation of the candidate during the interview as I can. Uh, obviously, you you can't help but form some opinion during the interview, but I try to keep it as close to zero as I can. Afterwards, I take my notes and I compare them to the formal rubric that I've developed for each question. I have a series of bullet points of things that I'm looking for, which might be uh, naming a certain class of tool, thinking of a certain aspect of a problem, demonstrating empathy, things like that. I have a bullet point list of these and I go through the list, I go through the notes and I evaluate which points a candidate did and did not hit. And that should make the interview decision for me. Either the candidate got most of the things I was looking for, or they didn't. There's obviously still a judgment called, what does it mean to show empathy? How many of the points does the candidate need to hit to be a strong hire versus a regular hire versus a no hire? Uh, but by abstracting the decision-making from the interview process, from the, from the actual interview, I think you're able to remove bias from the process, address the interview decision more as a technical problem and less as an emotional problem. And I think that leads to better hiring decisions. I think the other aspect of the interview process that I really like that's been present at all of these companies is that even when I'm the hiring manager, I'm just one voice out of several. We get data points from a bunch of different people across a bunch of different areas. And that lets us see many sides of a candidate. Uh, and sometimes what I saw in my interview does not define the candidate as a whole. Uh, there have been times where I, I hired a candidate who I had given a no in my interview because the other data points were very positive. And for the most part, those candidates have worked out. So I think it demonstrates that any one interview is not the full story. Yeah, and I love that. It seems very objective and, like you said, removes bias from that interaction, which can be very emotional. Like sometimes you don't know why you feel a certain way about a person, but this kind of makes it more of a data-driven decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, do you want me to go into the the other things I look for in a candidate? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So thinking specifically about the traits that I look for in candidates, uh, there are just a few. Uh, number one, do they work well with others? It's critical to keep that psychological safety on the team. And that starts in the interview process. Uh, when I look at senior candidates, I'm expecting them to not just be maintaining a positive culture, but fostering it by mentoring, by helping others grow and by improving the culture and not just maintaining it. Uh, I look for candidates to have a technical understanding of the field in line with their experience and with the role as described in the job description. 
basically, can you do this job with a reasonable amount of ramp up? Pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. I look for signs that the candidate has learned and grown over time, or even that they're able to do so in the interview process. Sometimes we'll see where a candidate picks up on something from the first interview and discusses it in the last, and that's a really good sign. But we also can see for folks who've been in the industry longer, how has their career gone? Uh, you can't over-index on that, but it's a valuable signal and something that I look for. Uh, and the last thing is signs of positive differentiation. What makes this candidate uniquely special? What makes them stand out from everyone else who has good skills and experience, uh, but some candidates have been exceptional in the past, and we look for those signs. Yeah, interesting. And I can, in a job market like today, where there's probably many qualified candidates for one position, it's very hard to choose between them, I'm sure. That's a good situation if you find yourself in it. I think the best candidates are not on the market unless they want to be, at, even in a tough economic time. Right. All right. So this is the last question I have for you. It's the one I ask of everybody that comes on the show. It can be as wide or narrow as you want. Doesn't even have to be related to cybersecurity. Do you have any predictions for the future? Yeah. So I think first, I think we've reached a point of stability in the core functions that security teams offer. We haven't seen that much change in the past five to 10 years in the types of teams we have. We have a detection team, an incident response team, a vulnerability management team, a threat intel team, a red team, et cetera. Those categories have been really quite stable over time. Uh, and we've even seen convergence in the names of teams across different companies. So I don't think we're going to see much change in the core structure. Um, so I think that will be pretty stable. I think we're going to see an increased focus on insider threat. There is a tremendous amount of risk from malicious insiders. And I think that that is not widely appreciated in the industry. I think there are some companies who know this very well. I think there are some individuals who know this very well. Uh, certainly the national security organizations know this very well, but I think there are a lot of companies who have a serious insider threat problem who do not even realize it today. So I think that knowledge is going to grow over time. Awareness is going to grow over time. And we're going to see a large uh, growth in insider threat professionals, tools, uh, and awareness. I see LLMs being transformative on the order of three to five years. So chat GPT and its brethren. Um, I think this is a technology where the hype is going to pan out, uh, particularly in that three to five year time frame. There are all sorts of interesting things you can do with LLMs. You can generate realistic looking attacks, realistic looking phishing emails, and see how your team responds to those. Do we detect a simulated attack that's been randomized by an LLM? They're really good at generating randomized but realistic looking input. Um, but red teams are really great, but they're hard to scale. LLMs offer the possibility of red teams at scale. Um, that's actually terrifying. <laughs> Imagine that we create a very effective automated red team that's able to autonomously penetrate a company and achieve mission objectives. Like, you better hope that that thing doesn't have any bugs. Like, <laughs> no putting the decimal point in the wrong place here. Um, so uh, that is something that actually scares me quite a bit. Uh, it could very easily get out of hand. Um, I also see LLMs potentially replacing SOC triage, again, more like in the five-year time frame. They're very good at inferring meaning out of text and responding with appropriate text. And so I think that we may be able to develop the capability to assess an alert 
and the data associated with it and reach a reliable verdict, at least as reliable as a human analyst. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually know of a couple companies working on those problem sets right now. (laughs) I'm very excited to see what comes out of the startup space in this field. I think it's a very exciting time to be in the industry. Yeah, and at the very least right now, it's a big force multiplier for people just you know, to understand piece of code or a detection logic without having to take the time to go through it, right? Absolutely. The speed of transformation that's happened after ChatGPT came out has been absolutely incredible. I don't think I've seen anything like it the whole time I've been in the industry. Yeah. Well, the changes are only going to get bigger and faster from what I understand. So (laughs) here we go. That's it. All right, David, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This was a great conversation. I think there's a lot of value here for for people out there trying to build teams. Uh, and it's a hard thing to do. So I appreciate you, sir. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Okay, take care. Bye. And that concludes episode number 51 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.